Good morning again. Excuse me. Last week we looked at uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. And in that chapter, Habakkuk starts off decrying the evil and sinful condition that the state of Israel had fallen into. And he's pleading before the Lord to do something about this condition. Asking the Lord to come and judge the sin of the nation. Habakkuk was fed up. He could not look at it any longer. And uh, so God says, okay, you want me to do something? I'm going to do something that you won't believe. I'm going to use the most wicked and perverse nation that you know of to come and judge you. And Habakkuk says, whoa, wait a minute. That's not really what I was thinking about. Uh, You know, it's one thing for God to judge his people uh, like he did with Nadab and Abihu who offered profane fire before the Lord and God judged them instantly. Or later on when Achan was punished by the godly in Israel for his sin. That's one way to judge. Those are appropriate ways to judge. But to use this pagan country who totally despises and rejects God, to come in and judge God's people? How can that be? Habakkuk recognizes God's sovereign right to do that and that God had appointed these people to judge Israel, but he still struggled with this. It didn't fit God's holy character. I think he probably struggled with, how does this fit the covenants that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you will be uh, their God And they will be his people. And we finished at chapter 2, verse 1. And Dave mentioned it this morning with Habakkuk sitting in his tower, waiting to hear from God a second time what he would say and how he would respond. And Caleb read for us the first part of this answer in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 5. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Record this vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Does this ring any bells with other times in the Old Testament that God wrote a vision or had someone write a vision on tablets, write his message down for his people to read? Twice in Exodus, chapter 31 and 32, God writes the message on stone tablets for His people to read. Deuteronomy 9, again, recalls our attention to this event where God writes with His own finger His message on stone tablets. A fourth time in Deuteronomy 27, God instructs Moses now to write this message again for his people. And it's interesting in Deuteronomy 27, verse 8, if you'll turn there with me and let's look at this verse. Deuteronomy 27, verse 8.
God's talking to Moses here, and he says, And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly, very clearly. God wants his people, God wants us to make sure that we get his message. He's not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to deceive us. God wants to be very clear with his people about what he wants them to do and how he wants them to live. The same type of thing is said in this verse. The message is to be written so that it might be read, so that it might be understood by the people. Again, God's message, He's not trying to hide things from us. He is wanting to communicate and reveal Himself to us. He's trying to teach us how to live so that we might live abundantly, that we might experience peace that we talked about this morning. That we might have joy. God is not trying to hide things from us. He is clearly communicating His truth to us. The last half of verse 2 says that the one who reads it may run. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that we read this message and that we run with it? The NIV and the Net Bible translate this a little bit differently uh, with the idea that we take this message to other people. And I suppose in a way that fits. The Israelites were commanded to take God's Word and be a light to the nations. We are also called in Matthew to proclaim the gospel, making disciples of all peoples and all nations. We are to take the gospel out. We are to take God's message and proclaim it. But I'm not sure that that's what Habakkuk is saying here. I'm not sure that what God is communicating here. I think the idea is rather, the idea of running with it is living out your life according to God's word. It's a poetic way of saying, live by faith. Psalm 119, verse 32 says, I shall run the way of thy commandments, for thou wilt enlarge my heart. I will live out your commandments, because you will enable me to do so. Isaiah 40, 31 similarly says, that those who wait or trust or put their faith in the Lord, will run and not get tired. We will be able to live out our life in service for God. Paul often uses this metaphor in the New Testament for living the Christian life. I have run the race. He didn't literally run a marathon. He ran a race. He lived a life of faith. That's what Habakkuk is recorded for us here. God says, record this vision and make sure it's clear. I want all my people to understand so that they may live according to this vision. 
And this will become clear in another verse. So what should we learn from what God is saying here in verse 2? First and foremost, this is divine revelation from God. This isn't Habakkuk's opinion. Peter tells us that no prophecy was one's own private interpretation, but the very words of God. This is divine, a divine message from God to us today. Just as it was for those in Habakkuk's day. And as I've said, God wants to make his message clear. He's not going to try and hide things from us. He wants us to live in such a way that we're pleasing to him and that we enjoy life to its fullest. God designed life. And there's a certain way that it's to be lived. And he's telling us, this is how you live it. This is how you will experience joy. This is how you will experience peace. And finally, this message is not one to just be stored away. It's not just a word that we hear and say, that was a nice thought, and we move on. This message is to be lived out in your life. This message is not just, not just for a tough time in your life. It's not just for how we will live in eternity. It's not just for getting us into heaven and getting us into eternity. This message is for living now and forever. God doesn't change the way that we live. He doesn't change the principles by which we live. He has had one message and one message only. And that is how we are to live. Verse 3. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. And it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come and it will not delay. Again, you see the sovereignty of God here. In which we can take comfort. This is not some new thing to God. He has an appointed time for this. This is what He has planned. It's not... There's nothing that catches God by surprise. And what is God talking about here, this vision? Excuse me. I think of what Habakkuk is talking about here. What God is telling us through Habakkuk is that this vision is God's plan of redemption. Why do I say that? Well, look what it says. This vision is moving to a goal or to an end. And it's an appointed goal or end. It's a goal that God has appointed in time. 
He says it will not fail. Now, it could be that God is talking about the coming judgment upon Israel. That's a very real option. That's what's being talked about here. God is going to come and judge Israel. And that is closely at hand. It could be, like the rest of chapter 2, 6 through the end of the chapter, that talks about all of the woes that will befall Babylon, the proud and arrogant people who have judged God's people. They have an end that is coming to them as well. An end of death and judgment. But I think, I think that God is talking about His end, His plans, and redemptive history. And why do I say that? Well, you don't get it from the English here. And every English translation I looked at it translates this verse the same way. All the pronouns there are it, the vision. It is uh, coming, it will not fail, it might tarry, but wait for it. But the writers of the Septuagint, the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, did something interesting here. They translated this, instead of it, as he. And it reads... Like this. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. He hastens towards the goal. And he will not fail. Though he tarries, wait for him, for he will certainly come, and he will not delay. Now let me just tell you that the translators of the Septuagint did not fix or fudge the Hebrew here. The Hebrew can easily be translated and go either way. It could be he or it could be it. I think theologically they were looking at this as this is the coming of Christ that God is talking about. And it's interesting, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, they seem to have taken... The author of Hebrews went with the Septuagint translation of this verse. Look at that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. The author of Hebrews writes, verse 37, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He will come. Is not Christ the end and the goal of all of God's plan of redemption? He was the one that was being looked for. They were looking for a Messiah. And God says He is coming. He's coming at the appointed time. Paul says something interesting in Galatians. 
chapter 3. Let's look at that for a minute. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, and in verse 6, Paul writes, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. How many of you remember back in Genesis 6 reading that verse where God says, All the nations shall be blessed in you, and consider that the gospel? Do you look at that verse and say, That's the gospel? But Paul says right there that the gospel was preached to Abraham in that saying. And it's interesting that that God tells us that. God is saying, I preached the gospel to Abraham when I told him that all the nations, all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but that God will be the God of all nations because of the seed that will come from Abraham. And it's in that passage in Genesis 15 where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And we see that this wasn't just some random, vague promise that God gave to Abraham. And Abraham believed it. And Abraham didn't know what he was believing. But Paul says, Abraham believed the gospel. The gospel was preached to him and he believed it. He believed that God would do it. Now, in that passage from Romans 4 that Caleb read, Paul tells us Abraham didn't necessarily know how it was going to be accomplished because he was an old man and there were certain things that weren't working anymore. But he believed God. If God told him that the gospel was going to come through him, through his seed, he believed it. There was a specific content to the promise of God that Abraham believed. It wasn't just a vague promise that that Abraham believed. It was a specific, it had a content. And so, I think that verse 3 here, when it talks about the vision... I think it's referring, in its ultimate sense, to the coming of Jesus Christ. And this verse is so wonderful. He hastens towards the goal. Christ is coming. And He will not fail. What a comfort that would be to God's people. To be reassured that your Messiah is coming and He will accomplish what He is sent to do. He will not fail. 
Think about all of the prophets that had come to the children of Israel. And in a sense, they failed. In fact, God told Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry, you are going to fail. The people are not going to listen to you. But here God's saying, your Messiah is coming. And he will not fail. He will accomplish his work. Now we know it was not the way they thought it was going to be. But he accomplished his work. It's interesting here that God says he is coming. But though he tarries, wait for him. Don't we often find that our timing is not God's timing? God works on a different timetable. I think of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do we remember often in times of trial that maybe God is withholding or delaying His help as a form of mercy? How about Abraham, or, uh, Moses? Excuse me. Moses waited to see God's glory. And he was rewarded and saw the glory of God. Exodus 33. Elijah was told to go to the wilderness and wait. And he would receive a revelation from God. And he did. Now most of us today, I'm not going to expect that we're going to see God pass in front of us and reveal his glory to us like he did with Moses. I'm not expecting a private revelation from God as Elijah had. But what I do expect as we wait on God's timing is that the Spirit is working in our lives as we spend time in prayer and pouring over the Word of God that the Spirit will come and direct our thoughts to passages that are already revealed and recorded for us in the Word of God that will give us comfort in time of trial. They'll give us direction in wisdom. They'll give us strength to carry on and minister. The Word of God will give us guidance. That's how God works with us today. He's given us His Word. And if we wait for Him and wait on Him, He will direct our paths according to His Word. He will teach us and instruct us through the work of His Spirit in our lives. And we know from this last phrase, for it will certainly come. It will certainly come. The hope that that gives. God's telling Habakkuk, it will certainly happen. It will come. 
It may not be in the exact timing that you thought, but it will come. That's hope. God gives His people hope. He's given us hope. Christ has come. He accomplished His work on the cross. And now God tarries so that none may perish. But He is coming again. And we have that hope. That future is certain. God is coming. He is coming to take us to be with Him. That's hope. Paul talks about the fact of the resurrection. And Paul lists a hierarchy of things that he wishes he could experience. He says, I hope the rapture happens right now so that I don't have to die. That would be the best thing. But if that doesn't happen, then the next best thing is for me to die and to go be with the Lord. In the meantime, waiting for that resurrection when I know that my spirit will be reunited with my glorified body and I will enjoy Christ forever. And if neither one of those things happen, then I will stay here and I will serve the body of Christ. And that's okay. But Paul's hope was to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew it was certain. I think this is maybe one of the verses that he knew. That it it will certainly come. It will certainly come. What a hope that we have to know that we will spend eternity with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's a tremendous hope. That's a tremendous hope in time of trial and tribulation. This world is not all that there is. If we don't know what the future holds for us, we have no hope. If we don't know that this world will be destroyed and all the things in it, all the pleasures will pass away. If we don't know that, we have no hope. If we don't know that there's an eternity with God in which in His presence is just the ultimate pleasure and joy, if we don't know that, we have no hope. Verse 4. The key verse, I think, in the book of Habakkuk. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Notice here the contrast between two types of people, the proud and the righteous. As presented to us. What is this proud person? Why is he not righteous? Chapter 1 gives us several examples of how proud and arrogant the Babylonians had become. Some key phrases are their justice and authority originate with themselves in verse 7. Verse 11, they whose strength is their God. Their own being has become their God. 
verse 16. They offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. The Babylonians, the proud, the arrogant person is so consumed with himself he thinks all of his strength comes from himself. His self has become his God. The proud and the arrogant person have their own sense of authority and justice. They make the rules. They establish what is right and wrong. They are a God unto themselves. And at their very core, they utterly despise and reject the one true God. But look what God says here. Look at this other contrast. It's implied. It's not clearly stated. The just or the righteous will live. The implication is that the proud, the arrogant person will not live. They will die. I can't think of a more applicable message to us today. I know I struggle with, at times with seeing all of the things that other people might have and wish, man, I, I, I would like to have that boat. I'd like to have that vacation home on the beach. That would be nice. Those are the things that the person who is proud and arrogant collects to himself. Because all he sees is what this world has to offer. He has no hope for anything else. I need to remind myself that the righteous one lives. The proud one who collects all this stuff for himself does not live. And it's not just that he won't live in eternity and he'll be judged. But I think also that God is telling us that that is not true living now. To live on anything else, anyone else besides God, is not true living. The rest of chapter 2, as I mentioned, has five woes that will befall the proud in verses 6 through 20. I thought verse 7 was interesting quickly. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become a plunder for them. Do you not see that in all these foreclosures where people borrowed on credit to build up these wonderful homes? They thought, this will make my life if I can get that home. I can borrow. But the Word of God says that will come to an end quickly. Creditors rose up suddenly, and they're taking those homes away. And these people are left with nothing. Their lives are dashed. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. I think verse 9 is warning us against the idea that we can be 
secure in this life, in the things of the world. Don't try and make your life secure by living in the right neighborhood and having a fancy security system. Those are not the things that protect you. God is the one who will protect you. God is the only one that can protect you. Turn to Him for your protection and for your deliverance. Just a few of the things that the proud turns to in this world in their arrogance and their rejection of God. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Now, what does that mean, that the righteous will live by his faith? How is anyone righteous? How is someone made righteous in the Old Testament? How are they made righteous today under the New Covenant? Well, we know that today we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have His righteousness imputed to us. And one of the things that is very scary is that there's a growing trend in evangelical circles to disregard that teaching. Some very prominent New Testament scholars. One in particular has said that no single person in the history of the church has understood Scripture's teaching on how, what the Bible teaches on justification by faith. And specifically, he deals with Paul's teaching on the subject. He says, no one has understood this until now. He has finally figured it out for all of us. I find that very scary when anyone says, you know what? Everybody since the time of Paul didn't know anything about the Bible. They got it all wrong. But I figured it out for you. That has a lot to say about what God has been doing in his church for the last 2,000 or so years. What that says is that all the gifted teachers that God gave to his church that taught justification by faith, and that means that we are imputed with Christ's righteousness as our basis of salvation, that they got it all wrong. That all those teachers that the Holy Spirit worked through to teach us that, they got it all wrong. And now he has finally figured it out. I will look very skeptically at someone who says that. We will look at that more next week because I want to take some time to look at this concept of justification by faith. Because it's coming under attack again today. There are those who are saying it's not an essential doctrine. Really. It's the essence of the gospel. So the gospel doesn't matter. That's scary. And it's not coming from outside the church. It's not coming from outside evangelicals. It's not coming from the quote-unquote liberals. It's coming from some trusted New Testament scholars. That's scary. We need to look at this. We need to understand it more. But quickly, let me just point out Righteousness, this word in the Hebrew, 
can also be translated the justified. And it is important to note here that this term is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It comes from the courtroom. One scholar writes, What is meant is the questions of right and wrong were habitually regarded from a legal point of view as matters were settled by a judge, and that this point of view is emphasized in the words that are derived from sadiq, for righteous, in the Hebrew. This indeed is characteristic of the Hebrew conception of righteousness in all its developments. Whether it be a moral quality or a religious status, it is apt to be looked on as in itself controvertible and incomplete until it has been confirmed by what is equivalent to a judicial sentence. In a nutshell, that means this term righteousness is first and foremost a religious term and not an ethical one. That is one of the things that these folks, these other scholars, are saying that this idea of imputed righteousness, it's not legal. It's an ethical term in Israel. And that makes all the difference in the world. Our understanding, our traditional understanding of justification by faith is that we had a legal problem before God. It was our sin. There was a price that needed to be paid. We couldn't pay it. God declares us to be righteous. Not because of anything good in us, but He deposits Christ's righteousness to our account. And there are people out there saying today, that is not necessary. That is not what is, that is not what is meant by justification by faith. I think that is exactly what is meant by justification by faith. We have to have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. I can't be righteous any other way. And neither can anyone else. It only comes because of God's grace imputing that to us because Christ took my sin upon Himself. Again, we'll get into that more next week. But at its foundation, righteousness is a legal term. It's a forensic term. It had to do with a courtroom setting. And there are countless passages, some of which we will look at next week. The question then becomes, okay, that's righteousness. How do I obtain that right standing before God? The Scripture is full of the fact that tells us that there is no one righteous. We can't have a right standing before God. God says it is by faith. So what does faith mean? I'm sure we all have our ideas. There are many who have taught that what this meant is that the people in the Old Testament had to be faithful to God's commandments in the Old Testament. They had to keep the law in order to be justified. The problem is, Paul rejects that idea in the New Testament, specifically in Romans and in Galatians. 
Chapter 4 in Romans, Paul argues this point from the life of Abraham. And Paul says three things there in Romans to counter this point. That is nothing to do with fulfilling the law, with keeping the commandments. First, Paul starts in Romans 4. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Paul begins arguing in Romans 4 that, that Abraham's faith was apart from works. And Paul argues that if it was by works, then God owed him something. But God owes no man anything. Abraham's righteousness was credited to him through grace. Paul then goes on to argue that Abraham never received circumcision. Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham is credited righteousness, there is no talk of circumcision. It was apart from circumcision. And it was obviously long before the law was given that Abraham was counted righteous. So Paul's saying, there is no way Abraham could have kept the law. The law wasn't around. It didn't exist. So faith is not faithfulness to commandments. It's not faithfulness to keeping, uh, doing good works. Faith, in its essence, is trusting God, believing God. And that's what Genesis tells us. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Proverbs 12, 17, and Psalm 119, 29, and 30 use this word for faith in this way to speak of the one who has chosen to trust God, that they will tell the truth because they know God will defend them. We can see from our context here that this is what, this is the kind of faith that is being talked about. The proud trusts in his riches, in his strength, in his own might. The righteous trusts in God. Calvin has some very good things to tell us about this kind of faith. Let me read them to you. True faith finds its resting place in God alone. Saying then that we are to live by faith intimates that we must willingly give up all those defenses, all those securities of this world that we think will protect us. We must give all of those up which are guaranteed to disappoint us. Faith strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from Him alone. Faith sets man before God, emptied of all good things, so that we seek from God what we need from His gratuitous goodness. That's faith. We come to God with nothing. Calvin says we come before Him naked and needy. We don't come with anything. I don't bring anything to offer to God and say, well, look at my good whatever. We come with nothing. We come in humble 
attitudes and humble reverence before him and say, I will trust you. I will trust you. I won't always understand what you're asking me to do. I won't always understand how you're asking me to do it or how you're going to accomplish it, but I will trust in you. God himself has asked us to live this way. And God does not disappoint. God will never disappoint you. God will never disappoint his faithful. Now there's much more to be said, much more I want to go into on this idea of justification by faith. And we're going to look at that next week. So continue to look at the study guide for this week. Romans 4, Galatians 3, Hebrews chapter 11 has much to tell us about living by faith. We'll get into a little more deeply this idea of imputed righteousness and what true faith looks like in our lives. Let me just recap this morning. God has given us divine revelation. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And he's made it clear so that we might know how to live. God's plan is moving to an appointed end, an appointed time. God's plan is all about redemption. And it, there is an end time that is still out there in front of us. And I do think that God is tearing. He is patiently waiting so that none may perish. God's plan culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What he has done on the cross enables us to gain his righteousness. But there is so much more that still awaits us as believers. We need to share that hope. We need to share that hope. Lastly, we saw that the righteous one will live by his faith. A person that is declared to be righteous before God. Having his sins forgiven based upon the pure grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us and teaches us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have written it down. We thank you for the faithful men that you use to record your word for us. In the miraculous way that you have preserved your word for so many, so many thousands of years. Paul tells us that all of this was recorded for our instruction. And you have gone to great pains to teach us and to make it clear. We thank you for your spirit who 
illumines our minds and our hearts to the truths of Your Word and to the beauty of Your person. Father, we are weak in our faith. Strengthen us that we might find all of our satisfaction in You. That we would not be proud and arrogant. Seeking strength in ourselves, seeking comfort and pleasure in the things of this world. But that we would trust You fully for all of our needs, for all of our desires. Help us to turn to You, to trust You. Help our faith. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.